right, good morning. Good morning, church. All right. Well, uh, good to be with you all. If you have a Bible, go to uh, Galatians uh, chapter 2. We're going to wrap up chapter 2 this morning. If you're uh, new or visiting, just glad that you're here, glad that you get to uh, join us for worship. Uh, Very simply, we're worshiping uh, a person who was God. His name is Jesus Christ. And so uh, we do that a number of ways. We do that by uh, singing songs so that we uh, can can just more fully understand and even say from our hearts uh, in a way that God has given us in the gift of music to to declare what he's done and and how he has uh, been the one when our hearts are prone to wander. He's the one who continually uh, brings us back to a place where life can be found. We worship by sitting under preaching, uh, which is just uh, just basically the, the taught scriptures where God wants to speak uh, to us through his written revelation. He's given us his revelation in creation, given us his revelation in his son, given us his revelation in the scriptures. So I always say if you're uh, wanting to hear God speak to you, just open up a Bible and read it, and it'll speak to you every time you do that. Um, we also uh, observe communion or the Lord's Supper, depending on your background, where we uh, remember this Jesus and celebrate his good work and being nourished by those saving benefits. And so uh, we believe this does not add righteousness to you. This does not uh, in some way add to your ability to earn heaven or earn God's grace. It's simply a way that we are, are nourished in having this meal together because Jesus said, hey, remember me. Remember the centrality of my personal work and all that you do. And so uh, that's why we do that. We also are generous. We give uh, in the silver boxes on the back wall because God was most generous in giving us himself in his son. And I always say, if you're not a regular attender or member, um, we are not interested in your finances. We hope that you come to know, love, savor, worship, follow Jesus. Um, before we dive into Galatians uh, chapter 2, I uh, just wanted to give you a, a brief announcement on the new members class. If you're interested in uh, membership here and what it means, how we're structured, what we teach, how we operate, um, kind of the backbones and kind of uh, intricacies of who we are, I'd encourage you to uh, attend that class. That'll be November 4th, uh, and you can register online for that. Lunch will be provided. So um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive right into Galatians 2. There's a lot I want to unpack with you, and I don't think I have enough time. So, uh, God, thank you that you are good. Thank you that you reveal to us the truth. Thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit to discern what we could not discern otherwise. Uh, Father, I pray for brothers and sisters in this place that you would dial us into the seriousness and the beauty and the weight of what you want to say this morning in this text. Uh, God, just been, been burdened that we would, we would understand it. And God, I know that uh, that's a good place to be because there's nothing that a preacher or a song or an atmosphere could create to understand divine texts. So thank you that your Holy Spirit uh, can help us in that way. Uh, and we pray for those that do not have a saving knowledge of your son that have come into this place this morning and are uh, curious or um, for whatever reason uh, you've been uh, at work in their life. And I pray that today would be a day where they understand clearly uh, what it means uh, to know this gospel of grace, uh, what it means to be a child of God, and what it means to be forgiven of sin and to find life to the full. Help us as we look at this. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Galatians chapter 2. I want to actually start with a quote this morning, a quote that I read this week, and um, it was uh, very, 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 very good, and so I thought it really sums up the book of Galatians, um, and so I just want it to be on the screen for you, uh, and you can it'll speak for itself. It says this, legalism lacks the supreme sense of worship. It obeys, but it does not adore. Um, legalism lacks the supreme sense of worship. It obeys, but it does not 
adore. Uh, what you're going to see in the text this morning is that grace basically reveals who you really are, but in, in it revealing who you are, it actually leads you to life. Now, here's why that quote is, is really great. If you're wondering who it was, it was Voss. He's a famous theologian. Uh, you can look him up later. But um, the reason is, is Paul is emphatically going at this. He's, he's trying to help us understand that, that right action, apart from a transformed heart, lacks worship and lacks joy. Uh, so it does no good for us as the people of God to leave thinking we just have to be more moral. We just have to do a bunch more good things. We have to be better at our evangelism or better at our praying or better at this or better at our, our churchiness. Um, he He's really getting under all of that to show us that, that once you understand grace, grace is what frees you. Grace is what sets you free to actually pursue God all the more. Um, that's the, the amazing nature of how God has designed his great gospel to set us free from our sin. And so um, remember, this is, this is really important. This is why God is not simply after your morality. And Paul is continually laying this before the churches in Galatia. Don't desert this gospel of grace, the purity of grace, Christ alone, faith alone, by his work alone that saves you and desert it by trying to add to it or trying to abuse it thinking you'll just constantly be forgiven. And so uh, we want to make sure that we hang our hats here because God's after our hearts. It's actually really good news. Uh, God's not simply after your hands. He's after your heart being changed and transformed so you might walk more fully in his presence and enjoy him more. And this is why Paul will not stop talking about grace. So if you've read Galatians before, if you're someone who grew up in the church or uh, you've been coming for a couple weeks, you're like, man, just keep hearing about grace. Grace, this word grace. And he's not going to shut up. He's actually going to continue to talk about this grace. We're going to keep talking about this grace because you can never stop hearing about this grace, okay? Because it's everything. It's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of eternity. It's a matter of your joy. It's a matter of you putting sin to death. It's a matter of everything, this grace in this gospel. So Paul is emphatically not letting up on this understanding of, I want you to get what grace is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, um, everyone is fine with us believing um, in this grace. What they're not fine with is us saying they need God's grace. Right, So we live in a day and age where um, there's a thousand different ways to know God or know a creator or know a deity or have access to the divine or a uh, hundred pathways to heaven. And what I love about Paul is he's going to show you that um, when you have the, the grace of the cross meshed with other belief systems, that doesn't make sense. Like It, it doesn't, doesn't make sense. Now, I, I get the, the desire, but I want to ask you, does that make sense to you that there can just be a number of different ways to access God and, and find salvation? Like, does it make sense that someone can get up and preach that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came in human flesh and did not sin and lived obediently to the Father and, and absorbed the wrath that we deserved and gifts his righteousness, and someone else can come along and say, Jesus is just a false prophet or a cute teacher, he has no ability to reconcile you to God, and then someone else come along and say, you're both right. <laughs> like, I'm not saying you don't want it to be true, I'm asking you, does that make sense to you? Like, does that add up in your, can you go to bed at night laying your head on the pillow going, yeah, man, that totally makes sense. Yeah, everybody can just kind of, whatever you believe about God is true, and right, and we have this pressure then, right, as we walk into work tomorrow and, and we're confronted with, you know, is it about grace or is it about just, yeah, whatever you believe is, is okay, and there's this, this pressure we feel to um, not want to maybe sometimes admit what is true and believe what is true, and I want you to look ahead at uh, Galatians tw verse 21 real quick before we dive in. Go to the last text, because we're going to circle back. We're going to start there. This is what Paul writes about this. He says, I do not nullify the 
the grace of God. For if justification, that means being made, declared right before God, if uh, righteousness was given through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. (laughs) See, Paul's saying the same thing. I mean, Paul's saying, look at this. If you could gain right standing before God by some other means, if you could have salvation, forgiveness of sin through a hundred different ways, then why in the world did Christ die? Why why did he come? Why did God see the state of humanity and say, hey, I'm going to have my son come and incarnate himself and live an obedient life while he's scorned, mocked, belittled, blasphemed, and ultimately tortured, and then he absorbs wrath, and then he suffers and dies and rises? That doesn't make sense. I mean, what is the purpose of the grace of the cross if there's a thousand different ways to understand we have reconciliation with God? You would just be nullifying grace. He says, this doesn't make sense. If grace is not the answer, why would Jesus suffer at all? Why would he even suffer? What's the point? And this is what he's going to get at for us. And and there was pressure back then, just like there's pressure for you and I, to desert this gospel of grace. And and we get around other people and we go, yeah, yeah, grace plus works, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of Jesus, and yeah, that other stuff, yeah, you can kind of, that, that, that suits you well, you know, don't ruffle any feathers, you know, we all get along, no one needs to debate or persuade, or that sounds right, and, and back then it was, it was the same. You even have a guy, Peter, right, who was uh, the rock, Jesus called him, who was going to basically, on his profession of faith, the church would be built, that, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. You know, even he caved to the pressure to want to approve man and not hold fast to the gospel of grace. And Paul's going to just straight call him out on it here in verse 11. So an interesting text we're going to start in verse 11. A little awkward for church history. Here we go. Uh, It says this in verse 11. But when Cephas, that's Peter, the apostle Peter, came to Antioch, this is Paul speaking, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For certain men who came from, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, that's where you're underlining right, or circling in your Bible, Um, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Okay, Antioch. I know everyone has studied Antioch. You got a degree in Antioch. Really quick, Antioch is a very metropolitan city. It basically broke down 50-50, Jew and Gentile. Don't quote me on the stat, but it's roughly that. And, and what happened was is, is Jews and Gentiles began eating together, sharing a meal to demonstrate their unity in this gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel's saving not just Jew, but now all tribe and tongue. And so you have them sharing a meal. Now, a meal in the ancient Near East. If you're here for our seven-year Luke series... Uh, you learned a lot about meals and a lot about what they did, but, but basically a meal is not like our, our meal today. Our meal is five minutes of Taco Bell, okay? That's, that's not a meal. Their, their meal was long. It was almost half a day, could go all, almost a full day, uh, grew intimacy, a relational time to build. That, that's, that's what meals were. And so Jew and Gentile are now sharing meals together, and they're enjoying one another. They're demonstrating the gospel crosses all lines, all socioeconomic status. All tribes, all tongues. And Paul's like, man, this is going really well. And Paul leaves, and then Paul comes back, and something happened. 
He comes back and they've all segregated themselves and now the Jews are only sharing a meal with the Jews. Gentiles are only sharing a meal with the Gentiles. And he looks over and his boy Peter's joined him. And Peter is now just eating with the Jews. Now why is this this a big deal? Um, Here's why it's a big deal. Because what Peter's saying by his posture and by what he's doing is he's saying, hey, uh, even though we share Jesus Christ, I'm superior because I'm a Jew. There's a superiority complex. My heritage trumps you. That's what he's saying. That's not a step with the gospel because the gospel didn't come to do that. The gospel came to unify based upon Jesus not based upon your background, not based upon what you look like, not based upon your past. Are you forgiven in Christ? Are you set free in Christ? And so that's why it's a big deal here. He's saying basically I'm more important, I'm more elevated because of this. Now see, um, the gospel, this is why I love the gospel, because it eradicates superiority complexes. Now only a gospel of grace can eradicate a superiority complex. And, and we've talked often about self-righteousness, right? But, but here is what he's getting at is, is this is what the gospel does. Now, now here's what's happening for background. I mean, you basically see the promise back given to Eve that a deliverer would come, that a promised one would come, and the prophets scream it out. John the Baptist says it when he gets here, and the, the promised one is Jesus. He comes and he dies, rises. Salvation is found in Christ, solidified in Christ. Then you study the book of Acts, the new church, right? The, the early church starting out. First nine chapters are all Jews coming to faith in Christ, realizing he's the Messiah, and then you have in chapter 10, Cornelius, this awesome Gentile who places faith in Christ, and the promise is finally fulfilled, and now everyone can sit at the table together and enjoy feasting on Jesus. Okay, that's what happens. So, so here in this, Paul's saying, Peter, what are you doing? I mean, you, you know this story. You know how this unfolds. You were the one back in Acts 15 who was preaching how, hey, salvation is found in Christ alone, how it's not based upon works. And now you've been so persuaded by these people who you think came from James. By the way, they didn't come from James. If you read Acts, they went out on their own, not under the authority of James. So, so these brothers come. They think they're from James. And they're going, hey, it's not okay that you're eating with Gentiles you got to get over here with your tribe. He's going, what are you doing? I mean, and he goes, and further, how in the world, you being a Jew who can't even keep the law perfectly yourself, expect Gentiles to do that? You're a hypocrite. Do you see the hypocrisy here? And even his hypocrisy and even his temptation to cave and have people like him caused others to go astray. You ever wanted someone to like you so badly that you don't even realize you may be compromising aspects of the gospel in your life? And you start pretending around them? And then here's what he's showing is that this is not in step with the gospel. And this is why grace in the gospel is so important. Because we can read this about Peter and go, ah, Peter screwed up? Isn't that, great ho- isn't that great hope for your soul? That even if Peter can drift, you and I are surely going to drift. Listen, I don't, I don't need to know you to know you ain't Peter and you ain't Paul, okay? Both of them drifted at times. So, so we're going to be prone to drift. There are going to be moments where we're tempted to drift from this good gospel of grace, be swept away by cultural pressure, by what other people think, by the approval of man, get our eyes off of Jesus and his gospel. We're going to be tempted to do these things. And so if Peter did, we will as well. And so um, he, here's the thing, though. Peter needs the grace of God. Paul needs the grace of God just like we need the grace of God. (laughs) 
Isn't it great that this is an act of mercy? Like Paul doesn't come in there and go, hey man, you're out of the fold, lost your salvation. He's still given grace. He's still given mercy. Now I think if you're honest and you're in this room that, that none of us are unique. Peter's not unique to any of us, right? And I say where he's set apart. Uh, I think if we're honest and assessed ourselves, we'd all see the hypocrisy that is in us, including mine. There are ways that you have not lived up to what you say or to what you say you believe, right? No one in this room is excused of that. No one walks in here, I don't think, going, hey, uh, I'm lined up with every bit of what I proclaim and every bit of what I profess. I don't think that. And yet we see here great encouragement um, because we're like him. I mean, I don't know. We were just singing songs to God like, like three seconds ago. We were just singing, come thou fount every blessing. Right? I, mean, I mean, what were you saying on Friday? <laughs> were you talking about the grace of God? Were you, were you, you know, having moments where your, your posture was, was helpful in the ways that God has asked you to live? I mean, really? Like, were we all killing it? I mean, tomorrow when you walk into work... I mean, is it, is it always going to be lined up, or do you start to kind of change face with who you're around and begin to look like that culture and kind of adapt to what they do? And what is that like? Because this whole idea of uh, hypocrite just means actor. Uh, they used to wear masks. Um, they used to act like they were something else. And Paul's saying, don't, don't do that. This isn't in step. Don't blend in with just whomever's around you. Keep in step with this gospel. And, and Peter drifts just like us. And it's not complicated, guys. His drifting's not complicated. You know what he does? He takes his eyes off of Christ and his gospel. That's all it is. Like sometimes I feel like we try to like make it so complicated and, and add to it. But man, he just stopped seeing Christ. He stopped seeing his work. He stopped seeing the beauty of what he's done. And basically that's why Paul's saying, hey, Peter, you're not walking in the freedom and the fullness that the gospel offers you right now. Like you don't have to fall prey to the fear of man. Maybe you can be confident in who Christ is and the grace that's been given to you and, and trust that that will win hearts to him. Like, you don't have to fear what, what people think. I mean, that's why, man, the scriptures are going to constantly call you not to get your eyes off of something in particular. And it's his life, his death, his resurrection. You'll read it from cover to cover in the Bible. He wants you to center on Christ and see it. That's why we take the supper every week. We want you to be centered on the centrality of his life, death, and resurrection. That's why we want to sing songs that talk about that. That's why we, you should be sitting under teaching that says that. That's why you should be reading books outside the scripture if you do that Speak to that. Your diet is not Whole30. Your diet's not organic. Your diet is the gospel. That's what your diet is. Nice, steady diet of life, death, resurrection. You don't veer from that. You don't alter that. You don't change that. You stick to that because that's the only thing that will save you and sanctify you and purify you. That's why I keep saying emphatically this good news of grace in the gospel is not something you once believed in and now you move on. It doesn't just save you but still purifies you. And Peter, if you read Peter, do a study on Peter, what does he do? Always he takes his eyes off. And then he gets back on, eyes are off. Back on, Jesus, I see him, I'm drowning, back on. Oh, I'm angry, I deny him, eyes off of the gospel in Jesus. Oh, now they're back on. I see who you are, the risen Christ. I'll go preach boldly. That's, that's, all, that's all it is. I mean, I mean, the scriptures will constantly say Hebrews 12. What does it say? Fix your eyes on who? You? 
Fix your eyes on Mike Reed. No, we don't look at our navel. Man, I talk about that, the sin of just navel gazing. I mean, it's just pervasive in this world. Like, just look at yourself, find answers in you. Somehow they'll just appear. No, there's nothing inside of you where you're going to find answers. You find it in Christ who's outside of you and did something for you in your place, on your behalf. So now you can gaze at him, the author and perfecter of our faith. You're not the author and perfecter of your faith. Hebrews says he is. Colossians 3 will draw your mind to seek things that are above where who's seated? Not you, Christ. Should I keep going, right? So, so we have a, a clear mandate, a clear gift from the Bible that says, see Jesus, look at Jesus, follow Jesus. What does he say? Go in that direction. What did he believe in? Go in that direction. What does he stand for? Go in that direction. What did he do? Believing in that, remembering that. That's how you don't drift. Often we're not thinking about Jesus. We're not thinking about his gospel. We're not thinking about his work. We're not thinking about grace. So grace reveals who we are. And this is why I love that the gospel is always for your joy. <laughs> I mean, think about Peter's situation and put yourself in a situation. What's more liberating? Like you just pretending to be who other people want you to be for the very things you disagree with and know do not free you but further enslave you? Is that really more freeing to be a hypocrite and pretend? I mean, listen, any of us in this room know, if you've spent your life pretending to be someone else, how exhausting it is. So he's saying grace allows you to take your mask off and walk freely and fully and boldly. He's going to continue to unpack this in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. First, you've got to understand the word justified. Justified is not just as if I never sinned. Uh, that would bring you to zero, and you're still in need because you need infinite righteousness. Um, justified means that Christ, on your behalf, declares you because of his person and work. He stands before the judicial judge God. And his life and his death and his resurrection counts for you. And you are declared righteous in God's sight because he sees Jesus do what you couldn't do. So instead of saying guilty, he says innocent. It's good news. Thank you. Amen. I mean, anyone who's guilty in this room knows that's a good thing. That's good news. He makes you innocent. So justified is, is this idea. And so Paul's going, Peter, look at your hypocrisy. You're going to revert back to the law when even you knew the law couldn't justify you, couldn't make you innocent before God. And you're expecting these Gentiles, these, these other people who have, who have not even really been under these custom dietary laws to, to understand that as well. What, what a hypocrite. You yourself know it's all been about grace. We from birth, us as Jews, have known from cover to cover from the beginning, it's always been about something else. It's always been about this grace, this idea of washing away your sins as a sacrifice. I mean, I mean just, just go back to, man, Adam and Eve. What was the first command ever given? Tree of good and evil. And what happens? They eat of the tree, Genesis 3, and immediately following what happens, they realize their nakedness. They realize their shame. And what does God do? Hey, man, uh, here's a work. Here's a Bible to read. No, he covers their shame. 
It's showing here, sacrifice has to be made, right? Now, what happened? Did a, did a deer hop by and go, hey, you can have this? Like, no, that didn't happen, right? He provided it, right? There was a slaughtering. There was blood being shed. It was showing that our sin has to be dealt with because it offends God. It's so disgusting to him that, that, that something has to happen. So, so you got out of the gate in Genesis, as far back as you want to go, that it is not based upon any work. It's the sacrifice. Okay, then fast forward to Cain and Abel. You have God saying, hey, bring me, bring me a sacrifice. Bring me something. What does Cain do, man? Cain, man, works hard, right? Waters the ground, gets all his crops. He's got a full wagon. He's bringing the whole thing, right? All of his work. And what does Abel do? Abel just kills an animal and brings it. And which one does God accept? Abel's. You're like, but Cain worked so hard. But, but, but Cain watered the ground. Cain worked to, to bring all his produce well, because it's always been about what it would foreshadow and what you would ultimately put your faith in. It was never about you working and earning. And Did you know throughout the whole Old Testament, not one thing was given to be saved? There was not one frame of reference in where you actually are forgiven of your sin because of what you do? It never taught that. It never taught that the law was what saved you. You can then go to Moses, right? All the plagues. He's saying, let my people go. God's people are in bondage, all the Jews, the Israelites. And, and so he sends Moses to, to set them free. And he, all the plagues come in the final one. Hey, if the firstborn of every home is going to perish unless you have blood over the doorposts. So what does he say? He doesn't say, hey, to all the Jewish families, if you don't want your son or daughter to perish, do something. Good. He goes, no, just spread blood. Trust that the blood will allow my accomplishments to pass over. It's where you get Passover to foreshadow passing over sin. To show that blood, if blood covers you, you're safe. Man, you're warm. You're protected. It's all what God has always done, always provided. I mean, did, did they earn that type of salvation? No. They just put blood over the doors. Was there anything in them that earned God to pass over them? No. This is what the whole Bible speaks out about. Man, then you get to Isaiah 53. You're still in the Old Testament, by the way, of these prophets saying, hey, no, this has to happen. And it finally says, hey, by his wounds you're going to be healed. He's going to be crushed. All these things are going to happen because this Messiah is actually going to be that sacrifice. He's going to shed his blood. Then you get all the way to the New Testament. John the Baptist, forerunner for Jesus, comes in going, hey, uh, I'm announcing it. He sees Christ, the incarnate Christ, walking. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here he is. Hey, remember Adam and Eve. Remember Cain and Abel. Remember Moses. Remember all the prophets, remember these thousands of years, hey, it's all been pointing to what your faith would ultimately be in, which is Jesus, and he's here, and he's going to be our sacrifice. It's never been a work you would do so you could somehow earn God's salvation. It's always been grace. It's always been God pursuing, God going after, God's idea. That's the whole story of the Bible, and that's what we're seeing in the scriptures, and this is what the, basically Paul is reminding Peter of, and that's why now John the Baptist says, look, there he is. Hebrews kind of shows us this, puts it all together. Hebrews 10, verse 1, the law is only a shadow of good things coming. It's a great, great sentence. 
not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. In other words, man, they're, they're drawing near every year, bringing their sacrifices. Do you think you're going to be righteous by, by bringing these sacrifices? If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? In other words, hey, show up to the temple. Here's my goat. Here's my lamb. Here's my birds. They're all slaughtered. I'm righteous. Why return? Why come back? But those sacrifices are annual reminders of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The writer of Hebrews is saying, do you understand what those sacrifices were all those years? You understand what they were doing? They were reminders so you'd remember your sins. It was a shadow until the final one would come. It was speaking to a reality, this picture from the beginning, that it wasn't really the goat or the animal that was going to take away your sin. It was you putting your faith in something that ultimately would, which is Christ, which is God in human flesh. And you know what I love? Then you read Revelation and forever we're singing, holy, holy, holy is the lamb who was slain. I couldn't justify myself. I couldn't make myself clean. Man, just holy, holy, holy is the lamb who did it for me. Praise God that he made me clean, that he washed me white as snow, that he saved me by grace. Romans 3 speaks to this. Romans 3.20, therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight. That's in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of our sin. See, the law, like, the whole reason it's there is to make you conscious, to make you aware that you're sinning. I've said before, you drive down the speed limit, and you, know, you see a 45, you're going, whoa, I'm going 105, right? Like, it just makes you aware. It kind of reveals it to you. See, but some of us, so often, we go to the law to, to find healing, and that's the futility of works and not grace, the law was never designed to heal you. Jesus alone heals you. Jesus alone saves you. That's why you go back to his life, his death, his resurrection. You don't go back to the law. Now, the law has every right to tell you what to do. The law has every right to show you how God lined up our lives to be. And it's a good thing to follow. It's not a bad thing. But to go to the law to find healing and hope and salvation is futile because Jesus alone can do that. You can't do that. That's why it's so interesting when we stumble and fall, we revert immediately to moralism when moralism can't heal you from your inability to stay moral. Jesus heals you from your inability to perform right standing with God. And that's why the Bible says, even if you've never read the Bible, it was written on your heart. That's why when you grow up, you always know right from wrong. This is why this whole relativism that, that, that the world teaches that, that we can't really know, you even know that doesn't make sense to you because <laughs> it's been in you from the beginning, right? And so Paul says you're saved by grace and you need someone to do that for you. But see, no one wants that. Like we want to justify ourselves, Right? And so what happens is when the law exposes that we're not perfect, that we belittled his name, that we haven't walked in, in all the ways that God would have asked us, when we realize our shortcomings and our failures and our proclivities, now all, all of us are off, that all of us are broken, that all of us are fractured. I mean, as soon as you realize that, we, we want to try to justify ourselves. So let me just do some good things. I don't want someone else to do it for me because I'm too prideful. 
And so we try to accomplish justification through some other way, or we just blame, right? I'm not that bad, but society, that screwed me up. It's my parents, they screwed me up. It's my siblings, it's this area, it's, I don't know, it's my work, it's my spouse, it's we'll just find other things to blame. And would that make any sense in any other, any other situation? I mean, I mean a, a guy who's guilty in a courtroom and he's being charged for a crime that he clearly committed and he goes, yeah, I know I, I did that, but man, look, I, I was really good yesterday. And the guy goes, okay, not guilty. Like, does that make sense? And the Bible says there's only one way for justification. By grace in Jesus Christ, God sees that those fig leaves like Adam and Eve don't cover you like they should. And so he says, let me cover your sin, let me cover your shame. Then Isaiah comes and says, hey, look, we've always needed this and someone's going to come. And then John the Baptist comes in and says, look, there he is. And then in Revelation, we stand for all of eternity saying, he's done it, he's done it, he's done it. Praise his name. He's very good. I couldn't justify myself. Verse 17, this gets exciting. It says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. It's really interesting. A lot of commentators here kind of point you to 2 Corinthians where Moses is described as someone who comes as a minister of sin minister of sin that's so interesting and I think it's pointing back to this reality of when he came down from Sinai and he brought the commands and it showed sin and they were like wow I didn't before that I wasn't made aware and now there's condemnation and I realize I need a sacrifice but here's the thing here's what he's saying Christ Paul's argument is is amazing it's brilliant he's saying Christ didn't come like that like Christ didn't come as a lawgiver. If Christ came as a lawgiver, then, then he'd be a servant of sin. There'd be more condemnation. He didn't come to accuse. He came to remove accusation. He didn't come as someone saying, hey, I know you already broke all the former laws, so hey, here's a bunch more that you can follow. He came to say, I'm your righteousness. I'm going to be the law for you. I'm going to fulfill it. I'm going to do it all because you couldn't. And now you have this amazing work where Christ comes out as a servant of sin, but a deliverer of sin. See, that's the whole reason that Christ came. Not to, he's going to rescue you from the clutches of Satan, sin, and death. He's going to restore and redeem all that went wrong in the fall. He's going to make yourself joy to the full. He's going to give you his righteousness. He goes, man, so, so I died to the law because a better one came. Christ, the law of faith, faith in Christ. So it doesn't mean that you don't follow that law. You don't follow that law to be justified. You enjoy it now because it tastes sweet like honey, David says. Because Christ has made you new, Christ has given you his spirit, and Christ now lives through you and allows you to follow him all the more and pursue him all the more gladly. That's what he's getting at here. And he goes, man, that's why I'm not building up what I just ripped back down. Jesus didn't fulfill the law and then go, hey, here are some more. <laughs> he said, I came for grace. I came because you couldn't, and I'm going to deliver you from it. If Jesus is just a bringer of rules, then that makes him a minister of sin, a servant of sin, not a servant of freedom. And he came to set us free. He came to deliver us from Satan's sin and death. And I love it. It says he came so that we might live to God. So that we might live to God. He just tells you how in verse 20. He tells you how to live to God. 
I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. See, he says, once I died of this whole notion of pride in me that says, man, I can, I can earn the cross. I can earn God's favor. Once I die to this whole notion and lay down the fact that there's nothing I can do, no good works to earn God's favor, church attendance doesn't work, prayer life, heritage, family background, doesn't matter if your uncle's a Christian, parents are a Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter if your, pastor's, if your dad's a pastor or a crook, Christ alone justifies. Christ alone makes righteous. Christ alone declares innocent. Christ alone saves. He says you have to, you have to die to this, right, to then realize you'll actually be free because otherwise, Paul says, you'll never get it. Otherwise, you'll never get it. You'll never find freedom. When have you ever found freedom in you trying to finally reach a point where you're good in your morality? When has that ever happened? No one in the history of mankind that's ever happened to. Even Gandhi, Mother Teresa, it hasn't happened to anybody. They've reached a point to say, hey, my morality is on par with a holy, righteous God that exists in infinite perfections. <laughs> No one's ever said that. So Paul's saying, until I do this, this is why we have died with him, because this is no longer Mike Reed. This, this is Christ who lives through me and allows me to live to God. He puts a new spirit in me, guides my actions, guides my thoughts, guides my desires. Now here's why this is so huge, and I'm ending with this, and I'm praying that God might even allow one of us to, to somehow begin to, to see this. When you, when you hear that phrase, okay, I got my coffee cup verse, I've been crucified with Christ, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And you see that that's how you live to God, verse 19. I would bet all of us, all of us, are thinking of some moral action you have to do. If I'm going to live to God, then man, give me something to do. <laughs> right? If I'm going to live to God, I'm, I'm going to go be a social justice worker. I'm going to do humanitarian acts. I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going to memorize seven more verses. I'm going to, right? Immediately, morality is right before you. That's how I'm going to live to God. That's how I'm going to please him. That's how I'm going to get, I don't know, greater access to him. That's how, that's how I'm even going to overcome my sins by just trying to be better. Here's what's so amazing. Look at the verse. Like, look at the Bible. Look at what the, the text is telling you. He says to live for God means to have faith in Christ, which means to make much of God because you have Christ. So to live for God literally means to set your face like flint on Jesus, not you, not your morality, not your good works, not what you're trying to accomplish, not what you're trying to, to be to other people, not what you're trying to pretend as. This is huge. I'm telling you, if you could get 1% of what Paul is trying to tell you here in Galatians 2, 21, 20 to 21, a verse you've heard your whole life for some of you because you've grown up in the church and the church has only inoculated you to truths and has never allowed you to walk in its freedom. That's the danger of growing up in church your whole life and Christianity and evangelicalism and I just hear all these verses and I just think they mean something, but man, drill down deep into what Paul's saying. 
he says here, we learn from this that, that every time, it says union with Christ that actually allows you to live free to God because what accusation can be brought against you if you have union with him? If you've died with Christ and you live with him and he is your righteousness and he is the wrath-absorbing death that you deserve, who could possibly say anything? Your friend, a family member, your own thoughts. Every time that an accusation's brought, heaven says absolutely he can see Jesus. And you've got to live there. I mean, that, that's where your, your mind has to be. That's where your heart has to be. That's where you have to sit. Life, death, resurrection. Fix your eyes on Jesus, author and perfecter of your faith. Listen, I would plead with you, get your eyes off of you and onto him, and so much would change in your life. So much would change in your life. Get your eyes off of you. The Bible will never tell you to look at you. So I don't know what, where you're learning that theology. The Bible constantly say, look at him. Gaze at him. See him. Set your mind, your thoughts, your beliefs there. And remember what's true about you in all that he's accomplished in this scandalously gracious cross that loved you when you were not lovable, that died for you when you were a sinner, that rescued you not when you were doing good works, and that set you on his place. So now we see this weak moment in Peter, back in 11 through 14, and we learn that grace revealed where he was off so he can live to Christ and again see and fix his eyes on Jesus. And here is why this is huge. The reason this makes a difference on the practical level is because if you're not living by faith, that's what he says. What, does he, what did he just say in the verse? So I live by faith in who? The Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. What's that? The gospel. <laughs> so, so I live by faith in that. So if you're not living by the law of faith, you're living by the law, which does not save, which paralyzes you. So if I could be super practical, it's in those moments of stumbling and failing and attempting to try to earn what's already freely been given. If you try to do it by going back to the law, you will be paralyzed. And instead, he says in those moments, I remember the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I fixed my eyes on Jesus, and I see a holy lover of my soul. And you know what that does? That frees you to pursue him all the more. So now your walk with Jesus isn't hindered, it's opened up. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us to understand this. Because so many Christians are walking around tied to the law, don't even realize they're tied to the law. They're not walking free in Christ, even though they have Christ. They're not pursuing him, not seeing his glory. And that's why he ends saying, I can't set aside the grace of Christ because I can't gain it any other way. Really? I think I, think I could earn it through my works? I mean, I wonder, like, have you ever come to a place where maybe you've been so churched, that's why you think you don't need Jesus? Like, maybe you need to repent of your church attendance. I've just been going to church so much that I feel like I don't need Jesus. Or I've been on so many mission trips that I don't need Jesus. Really? You think your mission trip was so that you could, like, somehow, like, get in the kingdom? Or that God would look at you more favorably and say, oh, cool, he did a few trips. Lock him in. Right, like, well, where is that in the scriptures? Some of us need to honestly assess our souls. Some of us have a superiority complex. We believe because of the things that we do and how we read our Bible that we're better than others. And you've already forgotten and tried to nullify grace in the gospel. 
Others of us, man, you're sitting here going, man, there's no way God would accept me. And I'm saying he shouldn't if it were up to you. He shouldn't if it were up to me. But he can because of Christ. He can because of what he did. Let's ask God for help in this way, that he would help us never to nullify his grace as a church, as a people, that we would understand this. Maybe for some of us, we just need to repent of trying to justify ourselves by being more religious. Where are you not believing the gospel of grace? Because grace came to reveal who you really are and to set you free so that you might adore him. Because legalism, good works alone, does not create a true sense of worship. It's being set free in the gospel of Christ. Oh, God, protect us from being just obedient people for the sake of obedience. God, Father, help us to be obedient because it's who we are. Because we get to obey. Man, because we get to pursue you all the more. Father, would you open up our minds to understand what it really means to having died with Christ so that we might live with him and to him. God, might you help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Might you protect us from leaning on anything to accomplish what Christ alone can do for us. And God, might that produce a holy community that loves you and your ways and hates our sin evermore. Father, would you save some from Satan, sin, and death this morning in this place? God, would you deliver them from their own futile attempts to climb the hill of Calvary on their own? Might they just get on your back and cling to Christ, who was our sacrifice and our atonement and our freedom and rose to give us newness of life. Father, create a people in here where we can understand these truths that are impossible apart from your spirit. Father, encourage some in this place who need encouragement and convict and challenge those who need that as well. And just for your beautiful name we pray.